The following message is from the 2019 IBCD Training Institute, Identity Crisis. Father in heaven, I thank you for your grace to us and that you have rescued us out of darkness. You have turned us from idolatry to worship. We live in a difficult time. We pray that you would give us wisdom. I pray that you would make the time we spend now profitable, that I would be faithful to your word, that we would be compassionate for our fellow sinners, and yet we would be immovable when it comes to your truth. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so first of all, you have this massive outline. There's no way I'm going to get through the whole thing. I'm going to cover some of the highlights. One reason I gave you all that stuff is so that my outlines are so thorough, you can probably make sense of the parts I don't cover. Uh, You're very much aware of the uh, issues of homosexuality, transgender that are going on right now. And I'm going to approach it from a couple different angles, especially from the standpoint of counseling. That most of the people who come for biblical counseling on this issue are not militants waving rainbow flags all over the place trying to, you know, force their views on us. And so I'm going to give you a couple of real cases. So I think of a guy I will call Jeff. And I've known Jeff since he was a child. And now Jeff has been an adult for a while. And everybody's wondering, why doesn't Jeff, who's a fine fellow, find a wife and get married? And Jeff comes to see me, and he says... I'm going to tell you something I've never told anybody. I've not told my parents. I've not told a friend. But I am experiencing same-sex attraction. I have no interest in marrying a woman. I don't want to act out on my homosexuality. But I struggle. I struggle with seeing men in swimsuits or underwear ads. And, uh, and as Jeff was explaining his struggle with this, he's never been to a gay bar. He's never had a homosexual relationship. He's never... He doesn't look at porn, he just finds himself attracted to men and not to women, and he wants counsel, and he has the courage to share that struggle with me. Another case would be a man I will call Sam, and Sam is uh, the grandson of a pastor and the son of a pastor, and he's in an excellent uh, Christian college or university and he's an outstanding musician, but again, he comes and his dad brings him, and his dad says, you know, explains to my son, you know, 19, 20 years old, is struggling again, wondering if he's gay, struggling with same-sex attraction, and, and Sam doesn't want to act on those desires. He has struggled some with homosexual porn. He's not had a relationship yet, but he's, he's engaged in a battle, and it's a, a difficult battle. Or another guy, call Al. He's senior in high school at Christian school. And he has found another guy in the school who also experiences same-sex attraction. And they've sometimes spent time together. It's not become fully sexual, but they've made out a little bit. And he feels very ashamed of this. He's afraid he's going to get kicked out of the school because other people know. He's struggling. His parents are struggling. What do we do? Again, most people who come to evangelical pastors or biblical counselors, they're people who are struggling with it. And really, my experience that's most similar to that is men who struggle with porn. They know it's wrong. 
They wish that they could just take a happy pill that would all go away, and they're battling against it. And the Jeff I mentioned first of all, the guy that isn't self-gratifying to homosexual porn, he's trying to stay away. You know, if you were a guy struggling with heterosexual desires, you'd say he's like an A+. He's doing great in that struggle. But he feels so ashamed because it's a same-sex desire. But there's one more situation. I get the fourth scenario that we run into in counseling. And it'll be the couple whose daughter is 20. She's a sophomore in college. And she's come out and said she's gay. And the parents say, we still love you, Uh, we want to have a relationship with you, but obviously we can't approve of that lifestyle. And this girl now has a girlfriend, she says she's in love, and they're going to get married. And there's all this pressure being put on the parents, not to tolerate this, but to celebrate this. And they are basically getting a message that if if you don't embrace my identity, and if you don't celebrate with me my heroic act of coming out and saying what I am, then we can't have a relationship. And there are people under those pressures. So those are the most typical scenarios that I see. And then, you know, of course, it's in the context of a culture which is completely embracing homosexuality. And, you know, they're, they're winning the propaganda war, love wins, marriage equality, get on the right side of history. And we, as those who believe in biblical morality, are treated as the intolerant. I mean, by the way, this is a great irony in the whole situation, is that everybody deep down, because we're in the image of God, is moral and judgmental. It's just that they call evil good and good evil. And so we are the equivalent of racists, we are the equivalent of you know, the, the worst people on earth because we don't embrace transgender, homosexual uh, ideology, but their judgment of us in terms of even people not being able to have employment, broken relationships, is actually more severe than any Puritan that they've ever heard of in terms of judging things the other way around. It's also a problem among professing Christians. My uh, mentor, John Frame, says that when a view becomes accepted and popular in culture, it seems that some theologian will find something in the Bible and something in church history to support it. That, you know, it is now that homosexuality has been embraced by culture, just as feminism was a generation ago, now you've got people who claim to be evangelical who are in favor of homosexual relationships, who try to reinterpret Paul. That's another uh, battle that we're having to fight now. Because the conference is about identity, some of this has already been brought up by Jeremy and others, that you know, the, the mentality in our culture is that the essence of who you are is your sexuality. And whatever your sexual desire is at this moment is your identity. It's the core of your personhood, and that matters more than anything else. And you discover who you are by the sexual feelings you may have, and then that defines you. And, and you have to embrace Uh, who you are in order to be the true you. Uh, We had an interesting event at RTS a couple of years ago. We had Heath Lambert out, and we did a talk on transgenderism, which is all this is related in terms of rejecting what God has made us to be. And it was actually kind of an exciting event because 
this is when the bathroom bill and all that was going on in North Carolina, and it, it started in Charlotte, where I am now. And transgender activists were uh, networking on the internet to come to our event. We actually had a bunch of police there, and uh, some people wanted us to cancel. Thankfully, we kept going. But uh, Heath did a, a great job, and he but he basically gave a talk that around three points. He says, we all believe in authority. It's just that you know, your authority is your experience. <laughs> and whatever you've experienced is right, which is judges, the end of the book, you know, every man did what was right in his own eyes. But your authority is your experience, your feelings. And then <clears throat> our authority is the Bible, which tells us God made them male and female in Genesis 1. It tells us a marriage is a man and a woman in Genesis 2. Uh, but he said also, we believe in morality. And for you, uh, you, it would be immoral for you, from your perspective, not to embrace your feelings and act upon them, either by gender change, gender bending, homosexual behavior, whatever, uh, that uh, that is your morality. And of course, you would also judge people who would say that it would be wrong to do that. And so, again, you're just as moral as we are in the sense that morality is a big deal to you. It's just opposite. And then the third, which I thought was maybe most profound, is we're all evangelizing in a sense. We're all trying to convert people. <laughs> that you're trying to convert people to your way of thinking. And you're putting a great deal of pressure on people to turn or burn in a sense in terms of you must embrace my identity and accept it as being good. Whereas we also are looking at the gospel as the means by which you're converted and people are, are made new creatures. Um, you know, we have the hope, for example, in 1 Corinthians 6, Verses 9 to 11, uh, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, effeminate, homosexual, thieves, covetous, drunkards, nor revilers, swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were, past tense, were some of you, you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. And so, but they too, again, they have a message, they have a, what they would say is their, their gospel. Now, in this day and age, we as believers need to be able to give honest, biblical answers that, again, another problem, and this is actually kind of a, a fifth category of counseling, is that in, in our culture, people are very influenced by the stories of others. And so what people in my generation have found now is that our children, even if they're not homosexual or transsexual, they have friends. And this can go as early as high school where they have friends who are same-sex attracted or transgender and they hear their friend's stories and they're influenced by the story of the friend. Uh, one of Caroline's counseling cases before we left was a young lady, and she, her, actually her barrier to becoming a Christian was, I have all these friends who are lesbian, or I have these friends who are gay, and they're so nice. And they'll say, well, I didn't want these desires. I just found that I had these desires. I didn't ask for these desires. Life might be easier if I desired the opposite sex, but that's who I am. And, and so the millennials and whatever comes next after millennials are very sympathetic to people's stories. And I would have two primary answers to that. One would be that our stories have to be interpreted by the Word of God. 
that God's word has authority, that God is the same yesterday, today, forever. The grass withers, the flower fades, the word of God stands forever. And so we can't adjust our beliefs, which is a lot of what's been happening even in evangelicalism, where Rosaria Butterfield, who came out of a lesbian lifestyle, tries to speak at a major Christian university, and you've got so-called Christian students protesting her because her story, by the way, a competing story, is going to make people feel bad who have a different story, and so she shouldn't be allowed to speak because it might make lesbians and homosexuals feel badly. Um, you know, that God's word is our only and ultimate authority, and people are going to change. Although another thing I've also found is that in appealing to people who have been influenced by stories, the Bible being our primary authority, it's very helpful to tell stories like Rosaria's, where here she was, uh, English professor, brilliant woman at Syracuse, lesbian activist, and when Jesus Christ came into her life, she was transformed. We'll talk more about that as we go. Another person we had speak here a few years ago was Sam Albury. He wrote a book called Is God Anti-Gay? And part of what makes that book powerful to a millennial is that Albury would say the, the sexual interest, the sexual attraction I experience is same-sex attraction. He's a pastor. He doesn't act on that attraction. He's not living it out, but he doesn't find himself attracted to women. He finds himself somewhat attracted to men. He doesn't act sinfully on that. But then from, from that perspective, where his experience is in tension with the Bible, he submits himself to the Bible and goes through the scriptures in a fairly short book and says, even as someone who experiences same-sex attraction, here's what the Bible actually says, and I'm going to stand with the Word of God against my own feelings and trust God to help me to restrain my sin. And Caroline actually worked through that book with a young lady who was converted, kind of in the end of that process. It's, uh, and it's the word of God that converts, but the story along with the word uh, was, was helpful. One of the points that Albrey makes is this is really important, the ideas of marriage and sexuality. He says the Bible begins and ends with a marriage. And the original marriage, God bringing together a man, one man, one woman in marriage. But that relationship is designed by God to image his relationship with us. In the Old Testament, God is the husband, Israel is the bride. In the New Covenant, Christ is the, the bridegroom, we are the bride. Each person in the marriage is to image one of those. It's not a bride and a bride or a groom and a groom. It's, it's one of each. And Albrey says, you can't change your view of human marriage without ultimately changing your view of the gospel. And he also makes the point, which I think is very important, is human marriage and sexual feelings were never meant to be your ultimate fulfillment. They're actually meant to point you towards God, who is the ultimate fulfillment. So, how do we look at homosexuality? Should it be treated differently than other sins or temptations? And actually, I think one of the problems with what's happened, like for some of us, this all seems to have happened very fast. You know, when I just turned 60 last year, and just, just like, like a blur from homosexuality, transgender, homosexual marriage, things you didn't think would happen, but really you don't have to go back that far when you had the acceptance of no-fault divorce, when marriage was already being denigrated by, you know, Jesus said, God has joined, let no man separate. We have a culture which takes that separation very lightly. When you have fornication, where the great majority of people before they're married cohabit, 
and engage in fornication. And the scripture says, fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. And, you know, for, I think it's interesting that even we're also, we're also against adultery and fornication. Any sexual expression outside of a marriage covenant between one man and one woman is sinful and wrong. I think that's also a point to make when we're dealing with homosexuality. It's not that we're against people who are same-sex attracted. We're against people who are attracted to anyone other than their spouse in terms of them acting that out. We consider all that to be sin. We're not against them, but we're against sin. It's wrong. It is a sin against God. It also has a corrupting influence on culture. The Bible does explicitly forbid homosexual behavior. I'm going to assume you know most of that stuff. It's in the notes. Leviticus 18, you should not lie with a man is with a woman. I think Romans 1 really makes the point that, you know, you know that Romans 1 talks about that the men, verse 27, abandon the natural function of the woman and women for the men, of, of the men. But the point in Romans 1, it goes back to verse 21. It says, even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculation. Their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals, etc. That the, the root of sexual immorality is idolatry. And actually what Paul says to the Thessalonians is the testimony of them is they turn from idols to serve the living God. And so the idolatry of self, the idolatry of pleasure, the idolatry of, of self-will is, is behind this. It's not just what your desires are physically and sexually. And interestingly, in Romans one thirty two, I think is a really significant verse in all this because it says, although they know the ordinance of God that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but they also give hearty approval to those who practice them. Now, this was written thousands of years ago and it's describing what's going on. The second part you know, it says they give hearty approval to those who practice. They, they, you know, we went to Disneyland last week and there are rainbow flags everywhere with the people there and in the shops and you know, they're giving hearty approval, celebrating transsexual, homosexual sin as a great thing. Well, that's what the scripture says sinners will do. But the part at the beginning of the verse, not everybody's aware, it says they know the ordinance of God that those who practice such things are worthy of death. And, and this is very powerful. This is actually something John Frame also taught me in seminary from this chapter is that Earlier it says, though they know God, is that every human being who is not a believer still deep down knows the true and living God. And they choose to suppress that knowledge and reject that knowledge. So they turn from God to idols, and they're not innocent in that because they know better. Even people who've never seen a Bible deep down know God's nature, know his justice. And it says they also know morality. They have a conscience from God. They know that this is wrong behavior. They know that it's worthy of death. And yet, they celebrate it. And, and so it's an act of rebellion against God. It's not just, I have these desires and I want to do it. Deep down, they know this is not how God made them. It's not right. And it's something, you know, all sexual sin, all sin, as Jeremy described in the last session, is deserving of God's judgment. But they defy God in what they're doing. So this is not just a sexual issue or even merely a moral issue, it's a theological issue. It is an idolatry of pleasure and of self. Okay, so why do people experience same-sex desire? And going back now, I can remember 20 years ago, I think, 
there were scientists trying to show that there were brain issues and uh, there are all kinds of things. You know, psychologists talk about nature and nurture and some would try to say, well, it's something in your genetics that people are predisposed to this. And, and basically the answer will be, it is, I think, really scientifically disproven that anything genetically causes homosexuality. There might be some things that might slightly influence people in that way, but even when they've done twin studies, they've never done a twin studies with 100% correlation. If you have one who's homosexual, it's always way, way less than 50% on the other side. So could it be that you know, the twins of homosexual, you know, homosexual person is more like, you know, the twin might be slightly more likely than the general population. Well, that also could be of nature and other influences. I mean, nurture and other influences but there's no biological cause. Uh, likewise with nurture. Uh, back in this, into the early 70s when psychologists believed that homosexuality was actually uh, a disease and it was a bad thing, uh, one author said in 1965, which reflected a lot of the current wisdom at that time, inappropriate and inadequate fathering is a major factor in the development of homosexuality in females as well as males. And so it used to be, well, if you've got a strong mother, weak father, no father, that might lead to it. Now, those could be influences. Um, there are even Christians who still speak this way in a book. It's a book called Gospel-Powered Parenting. I think there's a really, it's otherwise a pretty good book, but there's a statement in there I really object to and have even contacted the publisher asking them to take it out. They're quoting a guy who says, I never saw a homosexual had a good relationship with his father. We have come to the conclusion that a constructive, supportive, warmly related father precludes the possibility of a homosexual son. Does that statement bother you? I deplore that statement. I've been on the phone with a missionary whose 35-year-old daughter has come out as lesbian and he's weeping and wondering if he's disqualified. She made choices. She's responsible. The Bible does not teach that inadequate fathering causes homosexuality. each one is enticed by their own lust, and they give in to that lust. I think of my friend whose son, you know, the, the, the son, my, my friend who brought his son in who was in college and they were struggling, they had a great relationship. What a great thing that the son could share the struggle with the dad, and the dad still loves the son. It's not because the dad wasn't adequate that these things happen. So nature may be an influence, and there may be some people more inclined to that than others. Their nurture probably is an influence, just like if you've been in an abusive home and a moral home, you know, if you've been in a home where there was pornography all over the place and adultery all over the place, that might influence you, just like if you were in a home where there was drunkenness all the time and drug use. But here's the deal biblically, is we are all sinners by nature. That was the last talk. You know, the heart is deceitful, desperately wicked. Who can understand it? Um, that which is natural, that, and this is another problem with the premise of homosexuality, in, in our culture and the philosophy is that what is natural to us is not good. What is natural to us is often sinful. Uh, Proverbs fourteen twelve. there's a way that seems right to a man, the end is death. Uh, to do what is right in our own eyes is going to be wrong and destructive. And Jesus says in Mark 7, that's from the heart that sin comes and it's from a, a sinful heart. So we don't, what is natural to us, the, the premise of the world is, well, if it's something you just naturally desire, it's good. We've got all kinds of bad desires. By the way, every one of us in this room, there are certain things that we are attracted to that are wrong. And we shouldn't just give in to those. Uh, 
those of us who aren't same-sex attracted are probably attracted or tempted to be attracted to people of the opposite sex who don't belong to us. Uh, we're, we're just not naturally only attracted to our spouse. We could be attracted to the wrong person, especially if we fed that desire. Uh, we say, well, that's not my issue. Well, anger, worry, you know, there's all kinds of different issues. You go through the deeds of the flesh. Every one of us struggles with sinful desires. But in Christ, your genetics are not your destiny. I love 1 Peter 1, where Peter gives hope that in, in spite of whatever, and which I guess going with nurture as well, before I get to the first Peter, is that all of, us have, all of us have in a sense been raised in a dysfunctional home and in a dysfunctional world. We all were raised by parents who were imperfect, they were sinners, again, some more than others, we've all been influenced by that. But then 1 Peter 1, 18, he says, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your feudal way of life, inherited from your forefathers. The gospel gives hope that even if, I mean, we all by nature desire wrong things, we've all been nurtured badly and that we've been influenced by sin all around us, different kinds, different families. I mean, you may have grown up with a dad who was always angry and you're tempted to relate to other people in that way. Or you may have grown up in a family where people never talked openly and didn't communicate and you've been influenced by that. But the gospel enables you to overcome that, that Christ has redeemed you from the sins of your forefathers, whether it came through example or genetics. Again, different people struggle with different things. Uh, Denny Burke, writing about this, says, to call same-sex attraction sinful does not make gay people less like the rest of us. On the contrary, it makes them more like the rest of us. Uh, we're not singling them out as if their experience is somehow more repugnant than everyone else's experience of living with a sinful nature. And because of our connection to Adam, we're all drawn to what is wrong. But the Bible also teaches that we are responsible. So, you know, how does someone become enslaved to a homosexual lifestyle? Well, James 1, verse 13 to 15. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. So I will pause there. I would say, what does that tell us? Well, the people are saying, God made me this way are violating James 1 because James 1 verse 13 says you can't blame God for your sin. Same thing would be people who claim to be alcoholics because God made them that way. People claim to be pedophiles because God made them that way. That's the way they were. Well, no, you, God does not tempt in this way. You don't blame God. But then he explains how we do fall into sin and death. Each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. So he's describing, he's using birth as an analogy. And he's saying that lust in the heart is conceived, and it's like an embryonic sin. And I'm going to be kind of, a, it's a startling illustration, but there's a sense in which if lust is conceived in your heart, what should you do to it? You should abort it, right? This is a hideous monster, not a sweet little baby conceived in your heart. And, and when the, you know, the lustful thought comes, you know, the, the man feels attracted to the wrong woman or to the wrong man. What am I going to do to this? Am I going to feed this attraction or am I going to slay this attraction, put it to death? And that's what Paul talks about in, in Galatians and Romans. You, you put to death those desires, you take captive your thoughts. Well, 
the person, and, and as I've counseled people who become enslaved to homosexuality or this again, pornography, other sin, it's, it's sin is sin. It's that they are like us. We're all struggling with this. As you continue, I think Pallison used the expression, as you continue to feed the dragon, the dragon is no longer this cute little pet you can keep in a cage. He breaks out of the cage and he takes over your house and he kills you. That's what James is saying too, that lust conceived in the heart, if you allow it to continue, it gives birth to sin. And then sin results in death. And so you have this wrong desire. And again, all of us, you know, Jeremy talked about you, you can't even sleep without sinning. I think he said that we're constantly struggling with sin. We're constantly being bombarded because of our remaining sin with temptation. And again, you can be tempted to be annoyed. Um, today, I got tempted. And that is that uh, I wanted my wife to help me set up the table for the seminary where I teach. And she got caught up in a conversation and she forgot. And in my heart, I wanted to do what Jeremy was talking about. I wanted to kind of be quiet and grumpy and tell her how disappointed I am that she forgot to help me because I got sweaty and I didn't get help. Now, I have a choice, right? I could continue to feed my temptation to make her feel badly by showing how disappointed I am and being grumpy or I can, by the grace of God, put to death that temptation and in my heart forgive her. And I, I did point out to her what had happened and she said, will you forgive me? And yes, I for, I, I, the words came out of my mouth. Yes, I forgive you. The temptation did not end at that point, however, but I had to, I had to abort the temptation, not to be a grouch for the rest of the day, not to try to force her to make it up to me. Well, that's the way it works in all areas. And so, again, the, the person has the passing thought. It could be the pornography. It could be the, the, you know, the gay bar or the scene or the friend that is forbidden. Um, you feed it, it will take over. But those are choices you make. There are a thousand choices between the first impulse towards homosexuality and living out that lifestyle. And if someone is a believer... That's something that we have the power to fight. Uh, another question that often comes up is, is it sinful to be attracted, you know, to have same-sex attraction? And one of, the, one of the challenges right now is there are people within evangelicalism, it's kind of like the quote I gave from John Frame, is that when, when society embraces something new, then you're going to have theologians trying to justify it from the Bible so that we can keep up, like with feminism a generation ago. And there are people who say, well, it's not wrong to have homosexual desire, it's just wrong to act on it. Now, would that work with heterosexual desire? It's not wrong for me to desire some woman other than my wife so long as I don't actually have sex with her. Is that a good answer? And that's a, Jesus says in your heart to desire someone sexually whom God has forbidden is still sin. And so there's right now, there's a, a movement in, even in evangelicalism, and they have conferences saying, they're almost celebrated, like we're a different category of people in the church, we, uh, we, we have the same sex desire and that's okay to have those desires so long as we're not actually having sex with people of the same gender and we're kind of an identity group within the church and we should be accepted that way. And I think Rosaria Butterfield gets it really well you know, from the ex-lesbian lifestyle. She says, once you accept that as your lifestyle, once you accept that sorry, as your identity, once you embrace your identity, I am a gay Christian or whatever these people are saying, it is 
virtually inevitable that sooner or later you will act upon it. And there are specific examples where you can go back a few years and here's this evangelical Christian who says, yes, I'm same-sex attracted, I'm celebrating it, I'm not going to act on it. I know that would be wrong, that's what the Bible says. Well, you wait a couple of years and they're going to start justifying acting on it. Well, that's the way God made me and Paul didn't actually, he didn't know about homosexual committed relationships, he was talking about sleeping around or something and it happens. Colossians 3 verse 5 to me really answers this. He says, therefore consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which mounts to idolatry. It is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. So in the list, he includes passion and evil desire. The desire itself is evil, and it must be put to death, not just the action. So you know, for the believer who's struggling with this, to feel same-sex attracted and to experience that desire, it is a sinful desire. And they say, well, I don't remember choosing that sinful desire. Granted, you, you're a sinner in Adam. There, I, have, I, I was sinfully desiring to be angry with my wife today. I didn't want to choose, you know, I didn't choose in a sense, I, didn't, I don't want to be the kind of person who's tempted that way, but I was just the same. And I had to put that desire to death. So it must be fought at the level of desire. And, and part of it for me is when things like that happen, as minor as it was, it reminds me, I am really a sinner. By the way, I'm, I'm the last speaker of the plenaries. I know most of you are already going home. They saved me for last when everybody's gone. But yeah, the last one is I am going to be a glorified saint. One day I will have no more evil desires. But now I still experience sinful desires. I have to keep putting them to death. I want to kill the embryo in the womb before it grows and gives birth to sin and kills me and destroys me. Isn't it wonderful to think in glory there will be no more evil desires? I think some people get hung up, and Jeremy's example is very good, like, well, like sin is something they do now and then. Like, yeah, I sinned last Thursday, and maybe it'll happen again. No, I'm full of sinful desire, and I have to keep you know, killing those left and right, and sometimes they get a little bigger, and that's worse. So. To desire what God forbids is wrong, whether it's same sex, opposite sex. Uh, and if you don't kill the desire, if, again, you're saying, well, it's okay to have the desire. It's okay to let lust conceive in my heart, but just can't let it come out as an act. You're deceiving yourself. Um, so the next section I'm going to skip over, and I'll tell you what. It says, how can people change? I'm going to go through it really, really fast because you were given a booklet, I think, on the seat drop on my little booklet, Help I Want to Change. And also Jeremy and uh, Deepak are gonna do a tag team session, I think it's tonight, on sanctification. And basically the point is, is that real change begins with the gospel. The first imperative in the book of Romans is consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ. And it's not merely try harder, do better. It's that what Christ has accomplished on the cross was not merely to forgive us, but it was to give us a new nature. We're no longer slaves to sin. We're no longer dead in our sin. We've been made alive in union with Christ. And in Christ, we have the power to fight sin. And to be, God's word offers hope in that it's an accurate diagnosis of the problem, which is sin, which comes from the heart, sinful desires, but it offers redemption, which is life transforming. Uh, and there's no other hope for those who struggle with 
sin, including same-sex desire, than that. And by the way, I'll just mention something that this is important. I think it's better to say that someone struggles with same-sex desire than to label them gay, homosexual, transsexual, whatever else. Just like I wouldn't want to be labeled as a pornographer or an adulterer, such were some of you. You know, the, the struggling with the wrong desire, same-sex desire, better way to say it. We already read 1 Corinthians 6, that such were some of you, that there were people who were converted by the grace of God in the early church, out of that lifestyle, there are people today, many who were once, even in a homosexual lifestyle when they became Christians. Rosaria is one of the most famous, and she, she describes what happened to her. And, and I'll mention briefly, there's something called reparation therapy, which is the idea that it actually, it really came out of psychology back when they thought it was a disease to be homosexual, where you try to do different things to kind of knock the gay out of people. Now, Christians are often labeled as being practicers of reparation, this reparative therapy where, uh, you know, some of it is weird, like you show them heterosexual pornography or heterosexual naked people, the opposite sex, trying to switch the desire to that. Well, we know that's a bad idea, right? Um, there are other aspects, and, and you know, again, in, in the agenda of our culture, they'll make it sound, oh, they go to Jesus camp and they scream scripture into your ear and they try to beat it out of you. Well, friends, no one, you know, the, the, the change that needs to be wrought is wrought by the Holy Spirit, not merely by a bunch of rules or threats. Again, it begins with the gospel as you come to Christ and then Jesus says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. If you're in Christ, you're a new creation, you're dead to sin, alive to God. And so it begins with the gospel. It, it's not, and, and quite frankly, for a, a relative you may have who is in this lifestyle or claims it this way, their big problem is not their morality. Their big problem is that they are lost. And I love how Rosaria talks about that in her book, is that I wasn't converted from homosexuality to heterosexuality. I was converted from unbelief to faith. Now, when someone is converted, uh, one of Two things should happen, by the way. Uh, for some, conversion will be like Rosaria, where over a period of time, uh, the lesbian desires diminished, and she wound up marrying, of all things, a pastor. Now she's a homeschool mom. It's kind of an exceptional story of transformation. Uh, there are others, like Sam Albury, for example, when God saves them, they live a celibate lifestyle. They don't, they're, they, they're not, they don't feel the need to marry someone of the opposite sex. They're staying away from the sin of same-sex attraction. And Jesus talks about this in, in Matthew 19, that there are some who were born eunuchs, the others who were made eunuchs by men. But you know, not everybody's going to have marriage is what Jesus is saying. Paul says the same thing in 1 Corinthians 7. And so, by the way, this would be a general point of counsel. If, if someone is struggling with same-sex desire, Victory is not that they become heterosexual. Actually, if they become into pornography, fornication, and adultery with the opposite sex, you've, you're just as bad as you were before. You've just swept out, you know, one demon comes out, seven more come in. You've done them no good. The, the, the point is they become followers of Christ. Some followers of Christ marry someone of the opposite sex, and it's not good to be alone, and they, they form a family. Some will remain single. They are not less honorable in the eyes of God than the one who married. They're still walking with the Lord. And we should not pressure people. And there probably also are single people 
in your context, and you're wondering, why aren't you getting married? I wouldn't press them too hard on that question. Uh, that they may be struggling, they may, want to, may not want to tell you about it, or it also, don't assume they're, they're same-sex attracted. It also may be that they're just perfectly content as a single person, and Paul said that's a really good thing. So not all people who remain single are same-sex attracted. Some just don't need that, and that could be a blessing. But the foundation of change is the gospel, but also uh, Paul will say, as, after he says, consider yourselves to be dead to sin but alive to God in Christ, he then says we have responsibility to, not just to think about it in the right way, but to make effort, therefore put to death the deeds of the body. Stop using your body as an instrument of, of sin. And so there's a real fighting of it. There's a put off and put on. There's tear out the eye. It's, you know, don't hang around the people who are gonna lead you into this lifestyle. Don't read or look at things that are gonna tempt you in that direction. And, and by the way, this would get back to my first friend that I called Jeff, uh, that he says, I have these desires, but he's, He's not acting on them. He's, you know, when he sees something, when he's walking through a mall and sees a, whatever, a you know, poster or something, an ad and of a scantily dressed man, he feels drawn to that. He feels ashamed. But he's not, he's amazing as far as I'm concerned. Again, if there were a guy doing that well with opposite sex attraction, they'd pin a medal on him and women would be lining up to marry such a pure guy. So, uh, you know, and, and, the, and the battle is, is being fought in, in a similar way to other sin. And of course, ultimately, there's also the sense of dependence upon Christ, that you know, Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you abide in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. And so they, they rest in Christ. They make effort to be obedient as God empowers them. And then they also recognize Lord, work in me. Do whatever is necessary uh, to help me to, you know, give me the power. You know, the example I use in the booklet is when Peter was going to walk on water. He is not capable in his nature of walking on water. But Jesus, as he looked to Christ, he was able to walk on water. And that's what it is for us to get rid of any sin. Is we, we don't have of ourselves the ability to spiritually walk on water. But as we look to Christ... What was impossible before becomes possible and we can live a life of, of purity and, and no longer to live in slavery to sin. So um, I'm on Roman number four in my outline as I'm buzzing through some of this. So how do we help people who come to us? The very the people that I was describing um, in the beginning. We should have compassion. We all know what it's like to be sinners who struggle with sin. We all know what it's like to have sin that we can't entirely eradicate from our lives. Uh, again, there, there are probably people in your life who are same-sex attracted, who have never once admitted it to you and may not have admitted to others as well. And our churches should be safe places for people who have those struggles, just like it should be a safe place for people who are struggling with pornography, adultery, fornication, especially as they desire to fight that sin. And we should also have compassion that change and growth is hard, right? You know, if you think of the areas in your life where you've most struggled, uh, it doesn't just always go away right away. Sanctification is progressive. It's 
sometimes difficult. Uh, we talked, uh, especially uh, when Scott was teaching yesterday about listening well. Proverbs 20 verse 5 talks about how the plan of a man is like a, a deep, a man's heart is like a deep well, but a man of understanding draws it out. And so I think to hear their struggle, to try to understand their struggle, to acknowledge you too struggle. 1 Corinthians 10, 13, we use it all the time. There's no temptation come upon you except what is common to man. And so when I talk to someone who has same-sex attraction, and my wife talks to a woman who has same-sex attraction, even though that's not been my big issue in life, I, I know very well no temptation has happened to you except what is common to me, that temptation functions the same way in every single one of us, and I have to fight food, for example. Food is not wrong, but too much food is not healthy. And so I know the struggle. And then also recognizing, and this is something I think very important, especially as it's parents and grandparents, your objective is not to convert them to a different morality where now they're fornicating instead of committing homosexual acts. Uh, your, your desire is to bring them to Christ. And it's the gospel that gives us this new identity. Uh, Rosario Butterfield, my new affection was not heterosexuality, but Jesus. I was converted not out of homosexuality, but out of unbelief. It's learning to find your identity, your ultimate joy in Christ. It's the John Piper, desiring God, Christian hedonism, Isaiah 55, why do you spend your money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy me? Come to the waters, come buy and eat without money, without cost. And you know, it's, by the way, again, this is not unique to homosexuality, right? It's something that we all need to learn is that Jesus Christ is the bread of life. He's the living water and ultimate satisfaction comes from him. And we are, you know, the Puritans talked about the expulsive power of a superior affection or something, but Christ is better than whatever it is that tempts you, including homosexual sin, and nothing else will really completely displace that from you. Uh, taste and see that the Lord is good, in Psalm 34, verse 8. And so, as Romans 1 talks about how sexual sin begins with a false worship, conversion is what Paul says of the Thessalonians. They themselves report about us, what kind of reception we had with you, how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God. And back to the identity thing is that in a world which says your desires are good and you should always act on your desires, that is a form of idolatry. It's a self-idolatry. It's the idolatry of pleasure. And repentance would be, no, I am what God has made me. I am male or female according to what God has made me. Marriage is what God says it is. And now what matters most in life is not my self-expression. My identity is now back to such were you. I once was homosexual, fornicator, adulterer, swindler, all those things, but now I'm washed, I'm sanctified, I'm cleansed, I'm a new person in Christ, and that is everything. And again, so Christians who struggle, it's, it's, it's fought, I've already said, in the same way that all of the temptation is fought. Uh, Rosario Butterfield talks about how repentance requires greater intimacy with God than with our sin. And I've already gone through this part as well, that uh, some former homosexuals will still struggle with same-sex attraction. That doesn't mean they're not converted, right? I mean, heterosexuals who get converted still struggle with opposite-sex attraction. 
and it's a matter of fighting that and not surrendering to it, uh, aborting it. Uh, Rosaria warns against a false prosperity gospel that if you can just pray the gay away. Uh, that's an unbiblical view of sanctification. Sanctification in the Bible is, is a struggle. We're involved in warfare in the same way. I mean, you have the same thing with guys who struggle with pornography. Well, I asked God to take these desires away. I woke up the next day. I still had the desire, so off I went. Sanctification is not getting zapped from on high with instant holy desires. A glorification may be like that. <laughs> Suddenly, you'll no longer desire what is wrong. But now you're in a struggle and... The Holy Spirit will help you. And again, the same way that people who were former drunkards, people who were hot-tempered, uh, all the different categories, uh, after they become Christians, they're still sometimes drawn back. The old slave master, after you've been set free by Christ, is still going to appeal to you and say, come back and serve me like you used to. You belong to me, and, and we have to have an answer. Uh, and then there are some former homosexuals who experience a transformation in their desires. Um, it was interesting, and in all places, an NPR had online a story of a pastor, and it says a pastor says, who is attracted to men feels called to marriage with a woman. And it was kind of stunning to me. There's also been a couple articles. Usually the media is just all on the other side, right? But here's, and, and he, he and his wife say, we all have part of our desires that we choose not to act on. Uh, he and his wife agree that people in any marriage must work to resist attractions from outside the relationship, whether of the same or the opposite gender. Okay, last section I'll have time for today would be, well, they need to change, what about us? When I was just out of college and... I went on a retreat with the young adults. I was now in a new category, young married adults, and there was a retreat. And there was one of the young leaders of the group who was telling a story that he was working at a supermarket and a couple very gay men came in. This is somewhere in the South. And he described in a way like he was telling a story where he was the hero how he told them, we don't serve people like you. And he called them some names, and I think he tried to drive them away. Um, and people laughed, and that was 40 years ago. It was still really, really wrong. But for the grace of God, I would still be a slave to sin. If not that, something else. And I think, I think this is a, an area where the church has made great progress over the last several years. That, as I said earlier, the church should be a place where people who struggle with that should find, I'm not saying you stand in front of the whole congregation of a thousand people and dump all your junk out in front of them, but I think that to have relationships with pastors, with godly older women, with a few close friends whom you can trust, not necessarily the other ones who are struggling with exactly the same thing, but the church should be a safe place for people to acknowledge their struggles, to get help, um, and we speak the truth in love, and we, we offer help. We offer discipleship. You know, we've, yesterday we quoted uh, Hebrews 3.13. Uh, encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. 
as they enjoy the, the public means of grace and the blessing of being part of the community as uh, they're in the word. Uh, Rosaria Butterfield actually, she, you, know, you know what her recent book is about is hospitality. And it's not unconnected to her books about the homosexual identity and that what she noticed is that some, a really big deal among the gay community is hospitality and relationship and building community and they, in that context, they cook special meals for each other, they spend time together, they're supportive of one another. All of that is like a counterfeit of the church. We are the true community. The community they're seeking, God has designed to be the church of the body functioning together and the power of the spirit. So we need to be that community together. And this is where she's pressing us to be hospitable not just by inviting our best friends over for a meal every now and then, but hospitable. And she's describing inviting very strange and difficult people from my perspective, you know, into her home for meals. She was converted when a pastor and his wife, who are much older, invited her to spend time in their home and just talking and dialoguing. And finally, I don't know, months later, she shows up in church and you know, it's, it's by being warm and caring and building relationship and who knows what God may do over time. So we know who we are. He's like the woman at the well. Uh, she said of Jesus that, come see a man who told me all the things I have done. This is not the Christ, is it? Jesus knew her well. <laughs> He knew her perfectly. He knows us. He's the one who understands us better than we understand ourselves. Has made in his image. He made us male and female. Uh, he made us for himself, for purity. He's the one who made marriage. We don't have to figure out our identity. We're not autonomous beings who can define ourselves. We receive who we are as a gift from God. And then he also is the one who brings us joy and satisfaction and hope. Um, I don't have time for a lot of questions, but there's one that people often ask, which would be, what if it's my daughter, granddaughter, my workmate, and they're getting married to someone of the same sex, and they want me to come, what should I do? And the verse that comes to my mind most immediately is Romans 14, 23, which is, whatever is not of faith is sin. So I can tell you, I could not in good conscience go because my understanding of a wedding is the witnesses have a part in the wedding, even like at the end of the book of Ruth, where there's a covenant made before witnesses. Uh, that doesn't mean that I could not have them into my home afterwards. Again, their problem is their lostness, not their lifestyle. But my own view would be that I could not participate in a wedding, not even, uh, even attending the wedding itself, because that wedding to me is an act of rebellion against what God has said marriage is. I can't acknowledge it to be a marriage. But I can love those people. I almost think I could go to the reception. You know, I could be with them, love them, family members care for them, but that would be me. Now, I have friends who take a different viewpoint. I think they're wrong. But I would also say that it's not something we as Christians should condemn each other over the, you know, some people would say, well, I'm going to go and I'm going to be supportive and I'm going to be caring. I would say, I could not do that. I can tell you why I don't think you should do that, but I will not condemn you for making that choice. We agree that marriage is a man and a woman. 
in the same way that maybe some of you would say, well, how could you have them into your house a week later? Or how could you go to the reception? I wouldn't want to go, but I might. Um, you know, we're going to struggle with these things. We don't want to tear each other apart over the differences of how to handle this. I think it is also very important, however, that we don't back down that what the Bible says about marriage, identity, man, woman, on those things we agree and we can't let the culture force us into their mold. Does anybody have any other question? Since I started five minutes late, I'll go a couple minutes over, which you just want to eat your lunch. Yes. That is another one that's like the wedding. Yeah, here's the transgender person, and they say, she's, she says she's now a man. And, you know, I just try to avoid using pronouns in those situations when I've been in them. I'm reluctant to give in to that because I think God has made her a female and not a man. And so my, my preference is going to be to avoid the pronoun, but if I have to use one to use the pronoun that reflects who that person is in the eyes of God. But again, if somebody makes a different choice, and quite frankly, I get confused sometimes when I'm in the situation, um, I don't want to burn down the building over it, but it's not as severe to me as the wedding example, but my, again, this is the intolerance thing too, is that I can like you, I can be your friend, but don't make me agree with your false definition of manhood, womanhood, and who God has made you. And if they say, I will hate you, I mean, we're called the haters, but they're saying, I will hate you and shun you unless you will acknowledge what I've chosen to define myself. Personally, I'm reluctant to give in to that blackmail, um, but... I'm not going to condemn somebody else if they don't draw the line exactly where I do. I think our position to the person will be the same, and they probably will know what you think um, without getting into a battle over pronouns. It is. Like, there's, I mean, I wrote books about dealing with our adult kids and so in summary the problem with your I think a lot of parents are ashamed when their children are living in a homosexual relationship or marrying a homosexual relationship in a way they wouldn't be quite as ashamed if they married an unbeliever or even were living with an unbeliever and we need to help them to see the problem is that she is lost not that she's gay. And that what she needs is the gospel. And Jesus ate with sinners and loved sinners. And so I think the Lord wants you to love them. The Lord wants you to love the person they love. The problem with your daughter is not the woman she's hanging out with. The problem is she's lost and she's that way. And so I think you still love as best you can. And it's going to be a struggle. There are complications. Just like if you have your daughters living with a man... If they want to come see you, do you say, well, you've got to be in separate rooms or whatever? Different people, again, I lean on the conservative side there. Different Christians are going to come to different conclusions there. But I think in principle, you know, they know what we think. They know where we stand. They're going to have to be a bit tolerant of us too. Not just being in our presence, knowing we're not where they are. But we can also, 
surprise them with kindness. I'll actually end with this, uh, just because of time, and if you want to talk to me more, I have a few minutes, but uh, when we had the event, when Heath Lambert spoke about the transsexual issue at, at RTS in Charlotte, the person who, he was a man who had transitioned to a woman, I mean, she looked more like a linebacker than a model. <laughs> um, I'd say I used she. <laughs> um, he looked, anyway, I mean, super, it was, anyway, but afterwards, Heath ran off to be interviewed by World Magazine, so I was stuck talking to the activist person who had come. And as I spoke to this person and interacted and dialogued about what Heath had said, I thanked him for not being disruptive. We did take written questions, and Heath took all the tough ones from the activists. But we had a very friendly dialogue, and they even said that we'd like to talk some more, and you know, I've got a podcast, and maybe you can come on it. And, and the, they had, before the event, said, let's go there and let's show these nutty evangelicals what's what. But it actually turned out that when the person wrote on Facebook about their experience, they said, well, yeah, they're nutty, they're wrong, they drank the Kool-Aid, but I have to admit they were nice and that they were kind and we were treated well. And I took that as a big win that uh, it was hard for me. I've had a couple situations like that where I'm kind of like, I want to stay away from this person. I just, but as an ambassador of Christ, how, can, how would I honor Christ by being loving to this person without compromising what I believe? Let me pray. Father in heaven, I thank you that you have saved us out of the world. I thank you that the gospel is powerful enough to set us free from the idolatry of self and to to transform us to be what you've made us to be. Father, for those in our circles who are struggling with these things, give them grace and hope that the gospel gives. Help them to fight the fight, to put to death sinful desire. Help us to walk alongside them in discipleship. Lord, give wisdom and grace as we encounter very difficult situations. Protect the freedoms of our churches, our colleges, our workplaces as we work these things out. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Copyright 2019, IBCD. All rights reserved. More free resources are available at ibcd.org.